I was talking to this guy, you know, and I just happened to throw my purse on the sofa, and my diaphragm goes flying out. So I just froze, you know, staring at my diaphragm, you know, it was just lying there. So then this woman, the one who sold me this hair thing, she grabbed it before the guy noticed. So, I mean, big deal, right? So I carry around my diaphragm. Who doesn't? I mean, like, it's a big, big secret that women carry around their diaphragm. But I don't want to be a secondary character. Hello, Ivan. Hello, Stephen. And hello to you, our listeners. We are, but I don't want to be a secondary character. We're a Seinfeld podcast based out of Melbourne, Australia. And every week we take a random episode of Seinfeld and examine the secondary characters from it. And uh, this week we're doing a season four, I would say, classic episode, The Virgin. Yes, that's right. Episode 10 of that series and oh, of that uh, yeah, season rather. And uh, yes, uh, this is the introduction of Marla the Virgin. And she also is in the next episode of the contest, which we've already done, Steve, for our 50th episode. Yeah, live record we did uh, way back in 2018 I believe and uh, the video is still somewhere on our Facebook if you want to check that out. Uh, yeah, where we can still go to pubs in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> We're still in lockdown. <laughs> yeah, it feels like a relic in uh, more than one way. A, a relic of us and a relic of uh, social activity in Melbourne. Absolutely. Isn't it weird how you see videos of like old concerts and stuff and you see all the crowds? Is it weird you out seeing crowds even from like a year or two ago? Um, not so much because it hasn't been that long but I think if it goes on any longer it will start to seem like a distant memory. But I've got memories of crowds of uh, crowds of my own recent enough for it to not feel so distant but I know what you mean it feels like another life ago yeah it does it feels like we were you know 20 years old and uh, young and had all this energy not yeah. so much now it's uh, it's a bit topsy-turvy for everyone a bit bizarre world for everyone at the moment it is if you want to email us you can email uh, bidwabaspodcast at gmail.com we're on all forms of social media and you can say hello on them uh, you'll find those details in the show notes and uh, if you want to support us you can listen to our previous podcasts leave us a review if you'd be so kind and uh, you can support us financially as well. Yes, you can do one-off payments on PayPal and we're also on Patreon for a very, very small monthly fee and with the Patreon entitlement, you do get access to this episode earlier than everyone else, as well as exclusive access to our podcast Season 11, currently in hiatus, and Curbcast Seasons 2 and 3. And uh, Steve, by the time this one comes out, we should have Episode 2 of Season 3 out. Yeah, that's right. We're starting to record Curbcast in a couple of days, Season uh, 3 of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which I've never actually seen and I'm looking forward to getting into. I haven't seen Beyond Season Two. Me yes. too. Yeah, so I'm uh, looking forward to uh, watching a new show, a new old show. <laughs> a new old show. Yes. That's right. And um, finally, we do have a Facebook group, Seinfeldisms. It's just ticked over 90,000 members as of recording. Uh, so Goodness. we are the biggest Seinfeld group on Facebook by about 35,000 odd members. Um, we've got all sorts of fantastic things coming up, like trivia. Um, we'll be working with Kenny Kramer soon for a project that I can't yet announce, but all the details will come to light in the near future. So uh, check out Seinfeldisms on Facebook to check it out and join the fun. Very good, buddy. And uh, to kick off the episode, just like we normally do, speaking of Seinfeld-isms, what Seinfeld-related things have happened in your world? Well, I thought I was going to have a week of no Seinfeld-isms again, but uh, in true fashion, it came through at the last minute. I was watching the comedy roast of Bruce Willis last night, and I can't recall ah, who yeah. said what, but I do recall that one of the roasters made mention of Seinfeld in the context of comparing, I think, Bruce Willis movies or something. I can't exactly remember the, the reference, but uh, a mention of Seinfeld. 
So that's all I've got. What about you? Good. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I don't remember Bruce Willis being in Seinfeld. I know he was in Friends, but <laughs> not in Seinfeld. I was yeah, trying to figure no, out the it, relation there. Look, it wasn't a direct relation. It wasn't like, you know, Bruce Willis and Seinfeld were directly related. It was something, it was more of a Seinfeld being a metaphor for something that Bruce Willis did. Like maybe it was a show about nothing and yeah. Bruce Willis was in a movie about nothing or some some sort of like more like metaphorical reference than a direct reference. What's the deal with terrorism? <laughs> to do with Die Hard. On that comedy row, someone, uh, I can't remember who, made a quip saying that Bruce Willis is so old that uh, he started fighting terrorists in movies before they were Arab. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah. Hans Gruber and uh, his uh, Euro trash terrorists in Die Hard, you know, before the stereotype mm. of a terrorist was someone from the Middle East. But it was funny because at the time in the 80s and 90s, the terrorists were all like white guys, you know, Europeans yeah. and Americans and stuff. It was a different time. Yeah. I mean, you look at a lot of action movies in the 80s and a lot of the terrorists were like Central and South American. Yeah, that too. Yes. Yes. You know, and, and obviously the American government and the CIA did a lot of uh, naughty things in Central and South America. So that kind of, you know, it, it made sense that a lot of the, the quote unquote bad guys were from that part of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a podcast for another time. Yeah, I think so. But anyway, no, no Seinfeld isn't for me. Like I said, I am waiting on Jerry's new book, Is This Anything, which I have pre-ordered last week, like I mentioned last week. And uh, yeah, hopefully looking forward to reading uh, some more of his stuff. Yeah, it should be good. I, uh, I look forward to borrowing it when uh, I can see you in person after you've read it. Absolutely, yes. You'll, I'll return the favour like I did, you did with uh, Sign Language. Nice, except I won't keep your yeah. copy. You can have it back, the Sign Language book, if you want. Oh, no, I've actually got another copy, so I'm good. It's yours. <laughs> you have two copies. Yeah, love, don't, don't love re-gift it. my own gift. No, no, I won't you're do too, that. You're too I good to be a re-gift driving. No, 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 I can actually afford gifts. I don't have yeah. to send them off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Seinfeld News, buddy, how many pieces of Seinfeld News do you have? Uh, so it's been pretty bare the last month or so, but uh, we've got two pieces this week, which is uh, a bit more than normal. The first being a new development in the ongoing Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee court case. I reported back in May that the lawsuit and the appeal uh, lodged by the sewer, his name is Christian Charles, was dismissed. And I think at the time we said, well, that's kind of the final chapter. You know, it's been dismissed. Mm. The appeal's been dismissed. Jerry Seinfeld doesn't owe him any money. It's all done, funnily yeah. enough, through the week. And I only found this reported on one one really obscure law blog and I had to actually become a member to read the full article. It wasn't behind oh a paywall, God. but I had to pretend to be a lawyer to research into New York law firms. Last week you pretended to be a Jewish person and this week you're pretending to be a lawyer. Nothing will keep me from Seinfeld News. I'll pretend to be whoever I need to be to get the full uh, Seinfeld News picture each week. That's how dedicated yes, I like- am on the ground. I'm a, I'm a the equivalent of like a, a war wartime reporter, but for Seinfeld, you know, on the ground, yeah. sort of getting in the trenches, so to speak. Like George pretending he's an architect, you're pretending to be so many other occupations. Uh, architect just the you know one of many things I'd be pretending to be just to get the full uh, Seinfeld news scoops through the week. <laughs> uh, so the latest development is it's not so much about the case itself. As I said, the case was just to give you a very brief background. And if you want to know all the uh, ins and outs, just type in comedians and cars getting coffee lawsuit into Google because there's tons of tons of developments. But a very brief summary, about two years ago, a man by the name of Christian Charles sued Jerry, claiming that he came up with the idea for comedians and cars getting coffee way back in 2002 when they were working together on the uh, Seinfeld documentary comedian. He sued for copyright infringement saying that he didn't get any royalties when the show became a hit, especially when it was bought by Netflix. A judge dismissed that claim, not because it didn't have any merit, but because the lawsuit was filed uh, after the three-year statute of limitations for copyright claims uh, on these sorts of works. Um, Mm -hmm. He appealed it, and then in May this year, it was dismissed again. 
Um, and as I said, we thought that that was the end of it. Uh, however, through the week, a bunch of lawyers representing Jerry Seinfeld uh, appealed to a judge or made a case to a judge that Christian Charles should actually now pay for Jerry Seinfeld's legal bill, which totals $140,000 US dollars. Um, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of money. I know, I know. I can see why the lawyers are trying to pursue it. I know. I mean, a million dollars is a lot to most people, but you know, for Jerry, it's not much. But I think out of principle, that's why they're pursuing it. Their claim is that because the lawsuit was frivolous and it was filed knowing that the statute of limitations had ended uh, and that he was really just trying it on for trying it on's sake, uh, that you know he wasted their time, he wasted their money knowing what the result would be because it had no legal standing anyway. So now they're <laughs> basically saying, well, not only is your lawsuit dismissed, but you, you know, we're making a case to foot you the bill of a million dollars. You know, and I'm Jesus sure, I'm sure he doesn't have a million dollars. I'm sure he, you know, lives comfortably. He's a, he's a well-known uh, entertainment producer, but a million dollars mm. to, you know, to even someone like him would be very significant. Oh my God. Well, hopefully, because usually we, we put the links to the news articles in the show notes. So uh, if that's the only one going around, unless if something's come up, uh, you'll have to send me the link, man, so I can put it in the notes. Well, I actually did put a link on, uh, I think, our Facebook page yeah. to the law blog. But yeah, if you if you want to read the full article, look, it, it's not very it's not very detailed. Basically, what I've told you is everything. The judge hasn't actually determined whether he'll be stuck with a million dollar bill. I think they're still deliberating. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'll keep an eye out for that decision. And uh, if it's decided that Christian Charles will be paying a million dollars towards uh, Jerry Seinfeld's legal bill, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. You know, if I have to pretend to be a lawyer again or some other profession, I'll, uh, I'll make sure <laughs> do just to just to bring you the news. Very good, mate. All right. Well, maybe we'll chuck that one in the notes and yeah, see yeah. what happens. Yeah. Final bit of Seinfeld news, a NXT, which is a like a wrestle, like a worldwide wrestling league, uh, NXT champion by the, he's an Irish bloke by the name of Finn Balor. Balor? Uh, yes. Got like I've a, heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. He's got an Irish name and it's got a little mark over the A. So if I'm mispronouncing that, I, I do apologize. Some uh, articles came about, uh, came out through the week about how during the pandemic, during lockdown, and obviously the wrestling league has kind of been put on hold like most sporting uh, events and professions during the pandemic, that through the pandemic, he became a massive Seinfeld fan. So oh, wow. A, yeah. So he's a younger guy. I think he's in his early to mid 20s. So he kind of came of age after Seinfeld, you know, was what it was, you know, when we were coming of age. And, you know, he'd known about Seinfeld. He'd heard of Seinfeld before. Who hasn't? But he sort of just assumed that it was more like a traditional American sitcom like Cheers or Frasier. Yeah. Know, and that sort of that sort of comedy didn't really interest him. But, uh, you know, that his wife and him were looking for things to binge watch through the pandemic. His wife suggested Seinfeld. He was a bit dubious at first, but he thought, well, given the fact that it's such a well-known show, maybe I'll just give it a chance. Maybe it's better than the rest. Uh, and he said that he started with uh, two season six episodes, uh, being The Chaperone and The Big Salad. He deliberately started oh, yeah. season six because he thought, well, you know, that's probably the peak of the show creatively. So if I start where the show really hit its stride or where it really peaked, that'll give me an idea of whether the rest is worth watching. If the best of it is not good, then the rest of it's not going to be worthwhile. Uh, and he said after watching those two episodes, he re he realized that it was a brilliant show and uh, he smashed through the rest of the series from season one. He went back and watched it all the way through in order in a couple of weeks. Uh, and at the end, he he realized that the show itself is not just brilliant, but how much it influenced, uh, you know, even, even sort of um, British comedies that came soon after like The Office, you know, sort of a bit more darker humor, you know, characters that are a bit more flawed, you know, mm. and it's, he's, he found it interesting because he was a, a fan of, he's, he's mostly a fan of British comedy and British comedy is sort of seen as the pinnacle of comedy. It's the comedy that all other comedies try and be in terms of originality and humor and just witty, like wittiness. But the fact that an American show sort of had the influence back towards the British comedy, he said, 
you know, he, he respected it because he's usually the other way around. It's British comedy that influences everything else. But, you know, Seinfeld was so good, it, it sort of, hmm. you know, it reversed that trend. So he-, he That's wicked. He, yeah. So he, he um, he's now a massive fan. And uh, the end of the interview, he called it a piece of art, which I would agree with. Very good. Wow. Fantastic. Well, Finn, yeah. if you happen to be uh, searching for Seinfeld podcasts and you're listening <laughs> to this one, <laughs> give yeah. us a shout out or, you know, get in touch. Maybe we can interview you. Yeah, that'd be cool, actually. It'd be cool to get the perspective yeah. of, uh, you know, not only a new fan, but a younger fan. You know, we most- A professional wrestler, wrestler, too. Yeah, exactly. You know, it'd be an interesting perspective to have on the on the show. Yeah, well, <laughs> if that happens, doubt it, but uh, yeah. you never know. And, I mean, <laughs> Things you, might happen. If he's got enough time in his life to uh, binge watch a whole series, a long series in a couple of weeks, I'm sure he's got enough time to, you know, give us half an hour <laughs> to talk shit about uh, something. We're sounding a bit desperate, but who knows? <laughs> Whatever nah. he wants to do. Whatever <laughs> nah. he wants to do. Yep. Yeah. And that's all the Seinfeld news for the week. Very good, buddy. Let's have a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some secondary characters from today's, I guess you could say, transition episode for season four, Steve, because there are a lot of story arcs that have either started or continued from this episode. Uh, we're talking about the secondary characters from The Virgin. Hello folks, Matt McCoy here, a.k.a. Lloyd Braun from Seinfeld, and I'm telling you right now, I do not want to be a secondary character. Season 4, Episode 10 of Seinfeld is The Virgin, and that one first aired in the US on November 11, 1992, directed by Tom Sharones and written by Peter Melman and the Farrelly Brothers. In this episode, not having come up with a script for their new sitcom, George and Jerry now have to face the music when they meet with NBC executives. George's lack of discretion, however, has repercussions. Jerry sees Marla Penny in a bar, played by Jane Leaves, and mentions to George that when he last saw her, she was a virgin. Jerry asks her out and finds out she still is. <laughs> Elaine, on hearing the news, decides to give her a bit of coaching about men and what she can expect. And that's a pretty uh, pretty funny scene, Steve. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> they just get up or they make an excuse like they have to get up for work early in the morning. Yeah, the smart ones start working on their excuse during uh, during dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Marla. And uh, meanwhile, Kramer's addiction to TV grows after giving his set to George as he tries to watch as much TV as he can at Jerry's place. Our other secondary characters, Heidi Swedberg plays Susan, Kevin Page and Peter Blood is Stu and Jay, two of the NBC executives. Uh, I think this is the debut of uh, Rita Kirsten. She's played by Anne Toomey. She's the, uh, I guess, the acting CEO of NBC. The, um, I guess, Dalrymple's. I think she's a deputy CEO or, or acting CEO to, to yeah. Russell. Yeah, some other executive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lee Lale, uh, she plays Stacy, a lady who George tries to uh, befriend or tries to <laughs> go out with, even though he's with Susan. Daria Ruggles plays the lady in the bar who hates sitcoms and starts laughing at George. <laughs> um, Dana Winston plays her friend Carol, also at the bar, and uh, Ping Wu plays Ping, who we have actually mentioned uh, in his other two episodes very recently, man. We've uh, talked about Ping uh, a couple of times already in the last couple of months. Yeah, all of his episodes uh, seem to have clustered together purely just by coincidence. So uh, sometimes we'll uh, we'll talk about a secondary character we've mentioned before, but, you know, it was two or three years ago, so our memories are a bit hazy. So in this case, I think uh, we should we should remember pretty clearly what we've already said about Ping rather than go, oh, I think <laughs> we might have said this thing maybe three years ago. I don't no. Well, sometimes I forget what happened two days ago for me. So yeah, I no. guess we'll, we'll go for it and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Anyway, a bit of trivia about the episode, Steve. This episode mirrors actual events. Um, so Jerry actually mentions that what happened to him in the Chinese restaurant from season two as an idea for the pilot. Yeah. Another layer to the uh, metaness of not only this episode, but the storyline of uh, of Jerry, you know, the pilot Jerry uh, during season four. You know, not only are they referencing the show itself, but they're representing uh, rep uh, 
about referencing individual storylines in the show within the show. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I love how the NBC executives don't like it at all. They think yeah. it's stupid. Whereas he goes with the Butler story out of desperation and they love it. You know, I think it, I think it shows like, you know, sitcoms are known to be like very, you know, silly with some of their plots. And I think because Seinfeld was like so extreme and so different at the time, maybe executives would be a bit hesitant. So they probably like really dumb sitcom ideas like someone being a butler yeah i think it's supposed to be a bit of a dig at the typical you know tv executive not willing to take a chance on something that's yeah just playing it safe and and laughing you know laughing at dumb played out ideas not that coming a butler is a played out idea but it it you know it's it's a bit more of a low-hanging fruit than uh, the chinese restaurant theme so very low risk investment yeah i think a nice dig at tv executives from jerry there so the line where george says every time i think they i'm out they pull me back in is a reference to the famous quote said by Michael Corleone in uh, the third and last installment of the Godfather trilogy, Godfather Part 3, uh, which I feel is an underrated film, a bit of a misunderstood film. And that line is used a lot as a Godfather reference and also a bit of an in-joke in The Sopranos. So a double nod there. I was thinking the same thing because I was thinking The Sopranos when I read this and when George yeah. does this in the episode, I was thinking Silvio does it all the time. Yeah, whenever Just they're... when they thought I was out, they pull my back in. You know, whenever Tony Soprano's family are, are feeling stressed or they just need a bit of uh, a bit of levity in a situation, Tony will go, Sil, give me the line, baby. And he'll just go, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. And then they'll start laughing. It kind of just breaks tension. It's it's a good ongoing gag and in-joke within the Sopranos. Yeah. And it was nice how George delivered it as well. Yeah. Not as uh, not as intense as Silvio, but uh, yeah, still a nice, a nice delivery. Had a bit of nuance to it anyway. Yeah. And this is the first writing credit for the Farrelly brothers, Bobby and Peter, and uh, they're known to who have written the films Dumb and Dumber. There's something about Mary and Shallow Howl. So lots of uh, gross-out comedies in the mid-90s to the early 2000s that they were involved in. Ah. Uh, so I believe we mentioned this on the previous episodes that Ping was in, but uh, JLD and Ping Wu uh, also worked together on an episode of Arrested Development. That was a episode in 2004 called Justice is Blind. Yeah, and I do vaguely recall us mentioning that as trivia in the last episode or maybe the last two we've done uh, with Ping. But uh, yeah, yeah, interesting point um, nonetheless. I always like it when actors have worked together before Seinfeld or, you know, they work together after Seinfeld. It's always a nice reminder that the world can bring together the greats. Yes, and they can just get reunited and they probably reminisced about being on Seinfeld, JLD and Ping. Yeah, I imagine they would. You know, and even if they didn't, I'm just going to pretend they do anyway. Yeah, just pretend. Just be like, they were in this film and this TV show and maybe he was on Veep somehow. Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> just pretend. <laughs> yeah. um, I've got no other trivia, mate. So I, what do you reckon? We'll just jump in and talk about uh, Mod. Yeah, sounds good. Yes. We did mention a uh, TV series that you enjoy, The Sopranos, but we're going to mention another TV series that you really like, Steve. So Marla is played by British actress Jane Leaves, most famous for playing Daphne in TV series Frasier, one of your favourites. Daphne Moon. Daphne Moon. <laughs> she's also appeared in other TV shows, including Hot in Cleveland, Hercules and Murphy Brown. Uh, she's also appears, like we mentioned before, in the next episode, the seminal Seinfeld episode, The Greatest One of All Time, The Contest. Uh, that was our 50th episode, which we did live in the year 2018 so go back and listen to that one if you want to know a bit more about Marla after the events of The Virgin and she's also in a cameo in the pilot part two where she's part of the montage of lots of season four secondary characters watching Jerry and she's with JFK Jr. watching the show. Yeah and she's also in the finale as well she does appear in court to testify what a horrible man Jerry is. She does yes she testifies about the contest that they did and it uh, rolls up rolls up the courtroom. Yeah it's sort of um you know a lot of the criticisms you know in general 
and in the finale are very warranted. It, they deserve to be painted as bad people. But I feel like a masturbation contest, you know, I can understand why people would feel it's a bit depraved or a bit mm. sort of perverted or weird. But it, it's not a it's not a it's not uh, a signifier of them as people. You know, it's just no, it's a private no. thing. So I, I feel like yeah. her using that as an opportunity to paint them as bad people that should go to jail was a bit bit of a cheap shot. Yeah, probably because she had nothing else on them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was funny how Kenny mentioned, like, when we talked to Kenny, um, she meant, he mentioned that the contest was real, but he wasn't involved. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we did <laughs> interview Kenny Kramer, the real-life inspiration for Cosmo Kramer a few weeks back. So uh, check your feed for that. That was a really, really fun interview. Yeah, so Marla, I think she's still, when we first meet her, uh, it's at the comedy club that Jerry performs at a lot, you know, and Jerry recognizes her and points out to George that he uh, could have dated her um, and he was interested, but uh, she said that she had a boyfriend and he, like you said before, he starts talking to her again. And then uh, she points out that her boyfriend went to Berlin uh, after, <laughs> after he was inspired by Jerry's made up story of going to Berlin. And uh, Jerry's like, you know, oh, so what happened to him? And she's like, no, he never came back. I think, you know, she, she's very timid, very naive, very sort of um, reserved. I think she is, still sort of getting over her ex-boyfriend um yeah to be ghosted like that is uh you know i imagine even if the relationship wasn't good or even if you know you hadn't been with that person for a long time just sort of like that that other person disappearing would would take a toll so i've got this sense that she's still sort of you know still reeling from that and that's why she's a bit trepidatious with jerry sleeping with jerry yeah well i feel like maybe her boyfriend or her ex-boyfriend probably just wanted to run for the hills because he probably wanted to have sex with marla but uh, marla didn't want to uh you know he probably thought that he wasn't the right one because i remember we mentioned way back when in the contest episode it was a really memorable one for us i do remember us talking about why why Marla wanted to preserve her virginity and we were thinking maybe religious reasons but we were but I think you mentioned it was probably more for like personal reasons for her she just wanted to find like the right person so I feel like maybe her boyfriend was trying to goad her into having sex and then Marla was like no and then maybe um, the boyfriend wanted to get away from her and maybe at first he was inspired to do like a sabbatical to Berlin but then maybe he ended up finding like another girlfriend there or something and uh, ended up being shacked up in Germany yeah he was okay with waiting until Marla was ready but for some reason he changed changed his mind and instead of doing the the right thing and breaking up with her in an honorable way he just ghosted her dog act pretty brutal i think though for marla she seems you know she seems still a bit cautious um, about having sex with jerry but part of me thinks that i think after her boyfriend leaving her i think she's just in a hurry to lose her virginity it kind of changes her a bit she thinks you know Mm. i'm done waiting maybe maybe it's just not worth waiting for the right guy maybe i should just meet a guy that you know is okay he doesn't have to be the one just someone i kind of like just to sort of get it over and done with i feel like at this point her attitude towards her own virginity has sort of changed because she seems mm. a bit more keen to to see it through she's you know she's she's um making out with jerry very aggressively and she's kind of implying that she's ready to have sex by asking him you know are you going to leave straight after we have sex kind of indicates mm. to me that she's thinking about having sex with him but she's worried for a new reason which is you know she's not worried about uh, her virginity she's kind of gotten over that but she's worried about what elaine told her which is that men just leave yeah you know i think that conversation with elaine changed her a bit and it's made her realize that you know what i just want to lose my virginity to someone who's okay at best or at least, you know, but then she's got the new set of problems with Elaine. Yeah, and it definitely feeds into her naivety as well. Like, you know, when Marla says, what if you, you know, you decide to leave in the morning or you make an excuse to leave, Jerry makes a point saying, this is my apartment, why would yeah. I leave? <laughs> you know, so Levi. Marla, believe I, yeah, this is my apartment. <laughs> I live here (laughs) or something like that. But yeah, no, I I think Marla probably didn't think 
logically when she mentioned that to Jerry. And maybe she was kind of very anxious and worried when she asked Jerry that question. So she didn't even consider that she was actually in his apartment. And I think that's her, that's probably an effect of uh, her boyfriend leaving her, not just leaving his own apartment, but leaving the country. I can understand why you'd have some lingering anxieties and uh, not think clearly about, oh, hang on, he couldn't leave because we're in his apartment sort of thing. And she has a, I feel like she has a fear of like loneliness and maybe abandonment. She probably has abandonment issues, like maybe as a child, her father just like, you know, ran away from the family or something and she was raised by a single mom or maybe the opposite. I mean, I think maybe she's used to when you live in an environment or you grow up in an environment where people just abandon you or leave you, you kind of feel like that maybe that's the way it should be. Like maybe that's just part of my life. And whenever you find someone you love or you really trust in and they suddenly have to leave or they ghost you like uh, her boyfriend did, maybe she's just, you know, it just feeds into her uh, loneliness and she just thinks maybe that's what people are really like. They just abandon you when they don't want you. And she feels like she has she has really, really low self-esteem because of it. Yeah, she doesn't seem like the sort of person who has only been left once or maybe twice. It seems to have happened to her over and over yeah. and over again by, yeah, maybe her father or various members of her family and many, many boyfriends. You know, I think most adults who've been in, you know, a handful of relationships or more have probably had one person at least break up with them or, mm. you know, not treat them right. But, you know, and most people can get over that. They're they're initially sad, but, you know, they learn to deal with it and move on and then find someone else. Yeah. Marla seems like the sort of person who's just been an unfortunate soul who's been left and abandoned more times than most people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's left her, as you said, in a state of constant anxiety, fear of opening up, not just sexually, but emotionally. And I think that, you know, that creates that naivety because she doesn't know you know, she doesn't even know the sort of stereotypical ins and outs of male female sexual dynamics, as Elaine explains it. Um, mm. You know, you don't have to be sexually active to understand the humor and the stereotypes of, you know, men just leave after sex. You know, she seems naive even to that sort of stuff. So I think she's just afraid of being vulnerable in any way, emotionally. Sexually. In any way, yeah. Yeah. And yep. I, yeah, and I think you're right. I think it's because she's been abandoned by many people, men, women, who, whoever, um, you know, in many different forms over her whole life from childhood, probably to adulthood. But I think especially in her adult years, I think the main constant, you know, with abandonment is probably her virginity and the fact that maybe she wasn't quite ready. And, you know, a lot of guys pr- probably date her and be like, oh, she's a beautiful woman. You know, I'd love to, you know, get into bed with her. And then she's like, oh, you, you know, I don't really feel comfortable. And, you know, lots of guys, you know, would probably get really upset about that, that they can't, you know, copulate with us such a lovely young woman like that and uh, they decide to run to Berlin or, you know, go to find someone else. So that's probably, yeah, it's, it's happened so many times to her, especially in her, you know, sexually active adult years that, uh, yeah, she thinks maybe it's just part of my life. Yeah, I think so. I've got a bit of a theory about her livelihood as well. She is, she doesn't have a specific job title, but Jerry indicates that she is employed by people to basically sort out their cupboards. You know, she's a bit of a uh, an organizer and i think hmm. she does that and i think she's very good at that because it allows her some form of control you know uh, in a in a in a life filled with abandonment and uh you know not being treated very nicely by men having a job where you are literally in control of other people's disorganization i think can help her cope yeah i feel like she has really good like just adding to that i feel like she has really good organizational skills and she even she's really innovative in terms of like the wardrobe because she just says to jerry all you need is just hooks you know all you need is just rows and rows of hooks and you know, I feel like she probably really thinks outside the box. You know, she doesn't want like a big clunky wardrobe for someone like Jerry, you know, like a single or a bachelor, you know, living in New York in a one bedroom apartment. She probably thinks, you know, maybe she tries to find, you know, the most cost effective and the most versatile options depending on, you know, the individual's needs. Yeah, she seems quite, um, she, she seems to throw herself into her job. Like, mm, you know, she doesn't yes. just give sort of like a bunch of common sense practical tips. She seems almost like 
eccentric about it. She's like, well, replace it with hooks. And, you know, she's like. She's <laughs> I love that. Very, I love that moment from Jane. Yeah. She's very like expressive about it where I think most people just go, oh, yeah, we can replace, you know, the hangers and the racks and we can put some shelves up there and just sort of talk about it calmly and normally. But she's she's almost eccentric and quirky about organizing people's cupboards. So I think finding a job where she can not only, um, you know, have literal control over other people's disorganization, which allows her to cope with her own emotional issues. I think it also, you know, it's, it's something that she can be good at. You know, you said before that she doesn't have much self-esteem. So the fact that she throws herself into this job and that she's made a living out of it, a decent living, as far as I can tell, which I don't imagine would be easy to sort of, you know, before the internet, to have enough of a reputation to be constantly employed to organize people's cupboards. That's a very niche job and to be very mm. good at it. I think, well, to be in demand enough to make a full-time living out of it, I think demonstrates her, you know, her skill and her passion for it. And I think being good at it gives her one form of, you know, one form of sense of self. Low self-esteem usually is related mm -hmm. to a lack of identity or a lack of who am I, what am I doing, what's my place in the world. But I think this one part of her life is something she feels really good about gives her a lot of control and allows her to cope. And that's why, you know, Jerry's like, you really are a bit mad. You know, he does it in a, in a lighthearted way. And I think she mm. acknowledges that she's quite eccentric about it. But um, I think for her, it's more than just a job. It, it sort of, it works for her on many, many levels, so to speak. Yeah. It's the only good thing that's really going on in her life as a I whole. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, in the next episode, the contest, she uh, loses her virginity to the really hunky JFK Jr. What a way to lose it, huh? All that waiting was worth it. Oh my God. <laughs> what a way yeah. to lose it. What a, what a guy to lose I mean, it I mean, Goodness JFK me. Jr. is a, you know, he's a very, very handsome man, but he's, you know, rich, powerful, influential, and they're, they're together. Was. <laughs> was. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, I'm speaking, you know, at the, at the time of this episode. So, sure. yeah. So, I think it was worth the wait, you know, and I'm sure she felt that when uh, when it happened. She, like, she was like, you know what, I've been through a lot and I've uh, been mistreated a lot. Mm. But, uh, you know, considering who I'm losing my virginity to, we worth the wait. Well, we see in the end of the contest how disheveled and uh, satisfied she looks. So yeah. uh, they clearly had a good romp that night. I, I think so, yeah. yeah. I think, yeah. Um, you know, if, if we're still sort of going with the, maybe sort of a religious or a very traditional upbringing, you know, she seems very sexually naive. She, you know, she's embarrassed even by a diaphragm story, you know, and it's not even really about sex. It's about just a form of contraception. It's more about Elaine's embarrassment than the diaphragm itself, you know, and she seems Yep. very sort of uh, a bit sort of funny about that and a bit embarrassed and she has to leave because she's a bit awkward about it. I think once she loses her virginity to JFK, I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit of a sexual demon awakening in her, you know, all that, all that repressed energy just sort of manifests as a, you know, a highly sexually confident woman. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> we can go for that. She, uh, yeah, she uh, danced around New York quite a bit. Oh, I don't mean that. I just mean that, you know, a lot of people take a long time to find their full sexuality. You know, it's something you need to discover. But I think for her, yeah. it was just a floodgate opening. I don't mean that she slept yeah. with a lot of men. I just mean that right. her confidence was there from day one. And then she went on a sexual odyssey she of did, sorts. from Milan to Minsk. <laughs> Milan to, yeah. She's Rochelle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Rochelle, Rochelle. Mala, mala. Mala, mala. From Essex to Dover. It's <laughs> probably like two hours. Yeah, two from, hours. From Essex to Dover. I slept with two men. <laughs> just a day Dover. just just a day trip. You just yeah. go for half a day and come yeah. back. Shagged one in Essex and then I shagged one in Dover. Sexual journey it was. <laughs>
<laughs> Lovely. Yeah, <laughs> Our I British apologize. listeners would love that, I'm sure. I apologise to all of our British listeners. I do know we have a few. So, uh, sorry for my terrible accent. I'm sure they love it. Like we were saying before, the Brits the Brits are the kings and queens of humour. So, surely they can take a terrible accent from uh, from an Aussie. Yeah, I'm sure they're, they're fine. Yeah. Do you have anything mm-hmm. else about Marla? No, but I really enjoyed Marla. And uh, you can hear about her in the context of the next episode, The Contest, like I've mentioned a couple of times this episode. You can listen to our 50th, uh, number 50 on our list in our feed. And uh, you can listen to that one and we talk about Marla in detail in that episode as well. That's right. All right, let's talk about uh, Rita Kearson, the fill-in CEO for NBC. Yes, played by Anne Toomey. Uh, I didn't get much information about her, but I believe this is Rita's debut on the show. We do see her in the pilot part two where she just calls Jerry to can the episode and I think she's seen a couple of other times during the season uh, and she ends up replacing Russell at NBC as well as the CEO. Yeah, she's totally different to Russell. Like Russell wanted to give them, you know, a good go and probably liked the idea of Jerry, um, Jerry's concept, the show about nothing. I think Russell wanted to like take risks, but I think Rita is one of those really low risk, you know, she wants to keep it safe. She's one of those kinds of CEOs. She just wants to, like you mentioned earlier, she just wants to stick to a formula. Just wants to make, you know, the right amount of revenue for the network and uh, and that's it. You know, she doesn't foster creativity. She doesn't encourage anything outside of the box. She just wants a typical, you know, slapstick 80s, 90s style themed sitcom like The Butler. Something really silly. Yeah. And I mean, you can see that when uh, Jerry he's trying to you know he's trying to g up the the chinese restaurant idea he's trying to sort of explain why it would be funny and she's just giving him the coldest blankest most silent reaction nothing just completely dead and he's you know he's like oh he's a bit disarmed so then he has to to think about what to do and then he talks about the butler story and even then when he talks about the butler story she doesn't laugh at it she kind of follows the lead of the executives like Stu and jay who we'll talk about in a bit and susan they laugh at the idea and then she kind of follows their lead so i think even the the secondary idea of the butler she doesn't seem overly impressed with i think she's only going along with it because her executives and i'm sure she trusts their instincts uh, to a certain extent i think she's only laughing because they're laughing so yeah i, I don't think she was keen on jerry and george from day one you know i think she you know I, I don't think she liked the fact that russell was backing them and you know as soon as she could she cancelled their deal later on so yeah i think she's just got something against jerry and george from the start she just doesn't respect them she doesn't like their ideas you know she doesn't like the risk whatever it is i just don't think she's keen and no matter what jerry or george could say or do I don't think they could get her on board. Yeah, I have to agree. I feel like we mentioned with Russell in the pilot when we did the pilot parts one and two, I do recall mentioning that Russell has complete faith in his other executives, you know, with Stu and Jay especially. And I feel like Rita might have that same uh, attitude to them as well. I feel like if they're happy with a concept, then Rita, you know, because they've probably, you know, nailed so many hits and they've piloted or greenlit the right kind of sitcoms that have helped NBC become a juggernaut in the 90s for television. I feel like maybe Rita, you know, she's like, you know, Stu and Jay, whatever they pick, they always hit you know and even uh, susan as well they, they they seem to hit and get it right pretty much all the time so if they think the butler's a good concept i'm gonna go with it and make some more money for the company and yeah. get my bonus at the end of the year yeah i think if uh, <laughs> Stu and jay and susan reacted poorly to the butler idea i think yeah rita probably would have just said look we're canning the deal or i'm gonna try and get Russell to can the deal now. I think that their positive reaction to that one storyline is what saved them, at least temporarily, until Russell disappears and Rita takes over. I think as well, it's surprising to me that she, you know, obviously it's company policy that clients can't date employees, which is fair enough. It's a bit of a conflict of interest. So I understand why uh, Susan and George have to keep their relationship on the down low, at least for now. Mm -hmm. 
But yeah. she, as soon as she realizes that uh, Susan and George are dating, Susan looks at her very, very, with a lot of fear. She's like, oh, you know, she knows that she's done. And Rita looks at her like, you know, you're gone sort of thing. So I think mm. the fact that, you know, she seems to just not like or not respect or not want any part of Jerry and George. And I think that extends to Susan as soon as she finds out, you know, she probably respects Susan uh, professionally and probably as another woman, you know, in the, in the higher levels of NBC. But because she's involved with George, I think she's like, well, I'm just going to treat you three as, you know, as a trio and I'm going to get rid of you in any way I can. The fact that she sort of like sells her out without talking to her about it, you know, she dobs her in straight away to Russell and then Russell gives her the turf. I think she just wants her gone because she's associated with George and Jerry. Oh, you think that's what it is? She's obviously breaking company policy and she's, you know, she she doesn't want any exceptions to be made, but I think it's accelerated by the fact that her termination is accelerated by the fact that it's George and Jerry, who she doesn't like. Oh, fair enough. I was under the impression that Rita wasn't aware about Susan and George's relationship and probably, you know, maybe in that moment when she gave the dead eye, maybe she thought that it was going to be a conflict of interest. So I kind of went with the fact that, you know, she didn't really know about it before until she saw George kiss her. Yeah, no, no, I said that. Like she- Oh, right, sorry. Yes, George yes. kisses her. But sure. like, I'm just imagining myself in that situation. If I realized that one of my top executives was dating one of my potential new clients, you know, obviously straight away, you know that that's against company policy this is something we need to deal with but i would try and deal with it delicately i would i would talk to susan i would try and understand it I try and be understanding and maybe do my best to make an exception of like, okay, well, maybe we don't fire you. Maybe we just discipline you all. But I think because Susan is dating, you know, she just discovers that Susan is dating George and she already doesn't like George and Jerry. I think her mind is made up as soon as she realizes, like there's no thoughtful process of, well, you know, maybe they went on one date. Maybe, you know, it's just, she just jumps to that conclusion straight away. Yeah. And I think it's enough. only because if, if Susan, if she found out that Susan was dating a client of, of theirs that Rita actually likes some other writer, I don't think she would jump to that conclusion so quickly. I think it's because it's Jerry and George, oh, sorry, George, that Susan's dating. That's mm-hmm. why. Okay. You know, she's like, well, I'm, I'm going to try and I'm, I'm not too keen on George and Jerry at all their shows. And Susan now is grouped in that. So she can piss off too. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. Well, she's got a good reason to piss her off and then she does. Exactly. <laughs> well, she's a, she's an evil, not evil, but she's very, uh, not a nice executive. Look, we might have mentioned it in the, which episode is it that she takes over from Russell's position? Uh, the pilot part the two, pilot. when Russell gets goes missing. I think we might have touched on the fact that she probably, you know, corporate culture for, for women, you know, they probably have to be a bit more cutthroat and a bit more cold than normal just to sort of play that level with men, unfortunately. So, you know, some of it, she's probably a bit softer in her private life, but just to sort of be respected at that level, she probably has to adopt those characteristics. Mm. She just can't make any exceptions, even for other women like Susan, who she probably, like I said, who she probably respects professionally, but she just needs to just sort of cut her way through regardless of who loses out. Because of the glass ceiling and all that. Yeah, which is unfortunate, but that's, you know, that's the way it was and still is in some circumstances. So yeah. For sure. Do you have any other notes on Rita? No, that was it. Do you have any notes on anyone else? Oh, yeah, I do. Um, You wanted to talk just a little bit about Stu and Jay, didn't you? Uh, Yeah, just, well, look, they're only in one scene and we have touched on them in uh, the pilot and other episodes that uh, they've appeared in. Look, I just think they're the usual selves in this. They're just upbeat. They're positive. They're Mm -hmm. excited to see George and Jerry. You know, they're like, hey, how's it going? You know, it's like catching up with old mates, not business partners. You know, I think they really like George and Jerry. Um, And the fact that they seem very, very genuinely into the butler idea just reinforces their sort of like real positive can do go getter young executive you know we're going to find the talent sort of attitude that they have 
Yeah, that's it. And yeah. you know, like I said, that a reader, you know, has complete faith in them and they seem to hit, you know, with every idea that they come up with. Yep. Uh, I got a couple of notes just on a couple more characters. Stacy, so the lady that George tries to date in the first scene, even though she's he's with Susan. And uh, later on when Susan uh, breaks up with George, the woman in the bar. <laughs> so two polar opposites in my opinion. So with Stacy, she's played by Lee Lale. Lee Lale, she's known for Little Nicky and D2 The Mighty Ducks. And she's also been in the TV show VIP. I feel like maybe she works in corporate obviously not like tv but maybe in some other you know maybe in wall street or something and i feel like maybe she doesn't really meet too many guys that you know work in entertainment and you know it really intrigues her when george says that he's a writer it doesn't matter that he's a sitcom writer just the fact that he's a writer and she's really like oh that's interesting yeah i would agree with that the fact that you know i mean if i met a sitcom writer and they were making a living out of it that would that would be very impressive to me you know but to her it seems it's almost as if he you know he's like tolstoy she's like besotted with him she's like oh my god you're a writer you know when he's talking about his shit his bullshit about his gift you know she's just so taken with his lies and yeah Mm -hmm. because she doesn't meet any sort of or many if any sort of like creative people so even a sitcom writer to her is like leo tolstoy or something like that you know like (laughs) whereas in the in, in the writing industry sitcom writers are probably like down the bottom but for someone outside of it who doesn't know anything about it, you know, she would consider them gods. Yeah, she's probably sick of dating the same bankers and, you know, tax agents and whatever kind of corporate, you know, things that people work for. She's probably sick of dealing lawyers, all that stuff. She wants, yeah. you know, when she finds someone, you know, it's like when you tell people that you do a podcast, do their eyes kind of light up when you say it? Uh, no, not really. Not light up, but I mean, like people are like, oh, okay, podcast. Oh, people, cool. I guess people find it interesting, but no one, everyone's like, oh, yeah, cool. That That's like a cool hobby, but no one's ever been blown away or amazed by it. Okay, yeah. The only other thing I had, and you kind of touched on it, but um, I just think she's a bit naive. And I think it's just because if she does work in Wall Street or some demanding job, it probably doesn't leave her enough time to meet men outside of those circles or meet people outside of those circles. And she seems a bit, not just like, in a, not inappropriately, but um, surprising. She seems surprisingly blown away by the fact that George is a sitcom writer, but she also buys into his bullshit very easily. Most, yes. most women would have a sense that George is either lying or exaggerating when he is. Um, um, but she's just completely taken by anything he says. I mean, if I met someone and they described what they do as their gift, I'd be like, I don't know. So it would put me off straight away. But she, there's no red flags to her. So I think yeah, yeah. she's just a bit naive and just not exposed to many men outside of her you know, professional sort of uh, world. Well, George does mention later in the episode that for the first time in his life, he can actually be happy with what he says that he does for a job. So I feel like maybe in that moment when George met Stacey, maybe even though George was hamming it up saying that's my gift, you know, to try and, you know, woo her, I think maybe... Maybe he really felt like for the first time in his life, he could say, he could actually say with a smile what he did for a job, you know? Yeah, so maybe so in that moment, he kind of felt comfortable as well. So that probably helped. I'm, I'm not saying that George is lying. It's not like he has to make up a job he's happy about, like an architect. You know, that's just a straight up lie. He's obviously genuinely stoked that he can say he's a sitcom writer and that he's yeah. working with. But the way he talks about it, uh, not not what he says, how he says it is very, very cringy. You know, I think, I think he can <laughs> clearly say, I really like what I do or I'm good at what I do without coming across as like... Just a bit skeezy when he's like, "It's my gift." I'd be like, "Oh, you're a wanker!" <laughs> you're a wanker. Like, you know, people. Like, I've talked to people all throughout my life, and they've talked passionately about their job or how they're really good at it or how they're really successful. And it's been like there's still an element of being humble about it or being down to earth about it. Whereas George talks about it in this really like sort of off-putting, grandiose, cheesy way, and it's just the fact that she doesn't see that 
is, uh, you know, I think demonstrates her, you know, some level of naivety. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she's definitely naive. And I guess speaking of that, we've got the polar opposite. A woman in bar, she doesn't actually have a name. Uh, she's played by Daria Ruggles. She's known for Days of Our Lives and Dead by Sunset. The complete opposite to Stacey. She's really naive. She's actually not naive. She's, in fact, she thinks that being a sitcom writer is dumb. She, <laughs> she thinks, yeah. you write sitcoms. Hey, Carol, this guy is writing a sitcom. Yeah, I think in a way she kind of reminded me of maybe how Elaine, if Elaine was a stranger to George and George tried to use that to pick her up, I think Elaine would react very similarly because, you know, Elaine works in the literature world. She's very well read, you know, and her professional circles are highly regarded authors and people in that world. So I think a sitcom writer trying to impress her would would cause Elaine to react. So I would imagine that uh, woman at bar, whatever her name is, you know, maybe is either very well read or maybe she's an author or a writer. You know, she's got some connection to publishing or writing or being an author to think that sitcom writing is like the lowest, you know, lowest bar for writing. Yeah. I also feel like as well, she's probably like a TV and film aficionado and probably like a, she probably watches more like highbrow TV shows yeah. at the time, like say Twin Peaks, Northern Exposure, you know, that kind of stuff. So really, you know, maybe X-Files, you know, later on. Uh, she probably, like I wrote a note saying that if she was around or she, you know, she was still alive today or a real person, she would be spoiled for choice when it comes to streaming services. Yeah. She'd be able to watch like all the highbrow TV shows and she'd be so spoiled. World, I think. Yeah, she'd be in her in her element for sure. Yeah, yeah. And she sees sitcoms as like formulaic and very sac- saccharine. Um, and she probably loves it, like I said, very meaty drama as well. Meaty for 1992, like Twin Peaks and stuff. I think she's just a bit more highbrow than um than uh, than George. Absolutely. And then yeah, she can see through George's bullshit and cut straight through it with that really snarky comment. Yeah, I mean it's pretty mean. Like, you know, you like if you don't like sitcoms, that's fine, but you don't have to laugh at someone's face just because they, you know, are happy to be a sitcom writer. So she is a bit she's a bit rude about it but um you know yeah like we keep saying george is a pretty terrible person so if every so often a woman laughs in his face i think it's i think it's justified very justified and i like how there was the contrast or the juxtaposition between stacy who was liking the fact he was a sitcom writer and then the woman you know not liking the fact or like mocking him for it i thought that was great how they did a contrast at the start and the end yeah it felt very deliberate like writing wise it felt like they intentionally bookended the episode from you know one woman being enthralled by george's profession and the other woman completely rejecting it like viscerally thinking it's just you know laughable and terrible so yeah and then her friend carol is at the bar as well i'm guessing maybe they were trying to pick up guys you know maybe yeah. the improv and maybe they were like split up to you know grab different dudes and then yeah maybe she's you know she thinks that big george being a sitcom writer is so hilarious you know she breaks the character so to speak and calls out to her mate and then yeah. she starts laughing yeah. and they both start laughing. Yeah. so they obviously have similar opinions when it comes to tv and books you know they both don't like yeah. sitcoms i think yeah absolutely <laughs> anyway that's all the secondaries i have what do you have bud anything uh, else got a couple on um susan okay uh, yep heidi swedberg yep. yep played by heidi swedberg we've done her uh, she was our first ever what's to do with episode i think our fifth episode overall so go way back to hear our take on her and we've talked about her at length as she's appeared through episodes that we've covered. The only other thing that I mentioned that I don't think we've ever mentioned, and it's not really essential to her character, but it's just a nice little tidbit, is that she's got a very obvious crush on David Letterman. She does. Yeah. You know, when uh, Jerry says that George is speaking to David Letterman and, and she goes, David Letterman's on the floor? And she she's like a schoolgirl. <laughs> you know, she's a bit giddy and a bit like smiley, like, you know, meeting her her teenage crush. She must like his voice or something. I think, um you know, we, we've theorized a lot before that Susan was raised in sort of, you know, the upper crust of New York. You know, her parents are very wealthy. She's very educated. She's a high achieving person uh, professionally. You know, she's very intelligent. And David Letterman, you know, even though he 
is also super, super wealthy and super, super successful. He was always considered a bit of an outsider, you know, a bit of a, not a bad boy, but, you know, he was a bit against the grain slightly. So I think for her, someone like David Letterman, you know, represents a tiny bit of edginess that maybe she wouldn't be normally exposed to given her upbringing. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, like, it's like very a safe true. amount of edginess. You know, he's not like some, he's not like part of the Motley crew where he's shooting heroin and like sleeping with groupies, but he's got, you know, he's got enough greediness and enough edginess, but he's still quite safe for someone like Susan yeah. to be attractive, you know, like a very, very diet, watered down bad boy sort of thing. Yeah, I could imagine a teenage Susan probably watched, you know, late at night, you know, when her parents were in bed and she stayed up and watched Letterman and probably had like a big crush on him. Yeah, and I think it's because of he, you know, he offered a tiny bit of edge and a tiny bit of risk, you know, without being too out there for someone like her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the yeah. And I mean, also, he's a he's a he's a good looking dude. He's charming. He's funny. He's witty. So you know, there's a lot to like about David. Yeah, yeah, he's a good fella. It's a, I, I think we see him. I think Letterman plays himself in like a post credit scene later in the series. I forgot which episode. Um, but Letterman's mentioned, and then I think I think Jerry's calling Letterman about something, being on his show, and then Letterman has to turn him down for some reason. I forgot exactly what it is, but I do recall Letterman being on the show doesn't, very briefly, though. Doesn't Jerry appear on his show in one episode as well? Oh, maybe, or maybe he's trying to. He just mentions it. I think he's like. I'm doing Letterman this week or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do remember seeing Letterman. If you do remember the episode, give us an email or, you know, let us know. I'm curious. I forgot which one it was. But no, I do recall seeing like a younger a younger Letterman in one of the episodes. Post-credits. For sure, mm. for sure. All right, that is all the secondary characters for this week. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll find out whether any of those secondary characters appear in our top 20 and where the Virgin appears in order of all the episodes we've reviewed so far. I'm not allowed to go out with somebody else. Depends. Depends on what? On many factors. Like what? Well, how long you been seeing her? What's your phone call frequency? Are you on a daily? No. Semi-daily, four or five times a week. What about Saturday nights? Do you have to ask her out or is the date implied? Implied. She got anything in your medicine cabinet? Might be some moisturizer. Uh-huh. Let me ask you this. Is there any Tampax in your house? Now, my friend, out of 146 episodes, where does the Virgin sit for you so far? Uh, It sits at number 88. So I thought this episode was pretty good. You know, not mind-blowing. I obviously love Marla. Um, She's fantastic. Lots of good appearances. I like Susan in the episode. Stu and Jay I'm always a fan of. I think Reed is cool. Nothing bad in the episode, but just nothing I would say that is classic in the episode. Just just a good, solid middle road episode. What about you? Uh, yeah, well, 117 for me. And like I did mention, it is a good episode. Like it's enjoyable in parts, but I just feel like it's more of a transition episode in the lead up to the contest. So yeah, I mean, like I said, not a terrible episode, but it's just like, yeah, it just builds onto uh, other elements, especially like with Ping suing Elaine. That's the start of it. So you see like the genesis of that and yep. you see Marla, you know, pre- contest and uh, yeah it just kind of builds up to everything so yeah so but it's not a reflection on the episode itself for sure and uh, do any of the secondaries appear in your top 20 no but a special props to Marla I thought she was very well played by Jane Leaves yeah no I'm the same she played a sort of uh, a genteel timid sort of English woman very well being that she is an English woman so yeah honorable mention <laughs> for her as well yeah very good
good. Cool. Well, uh, we've mentioned the contest several times through this episode. Obviously, it's the unofficial sequel to this episode. And uh, what we've decided to do is uh, we're going to redo the contest. So we did it all the way back for our 50th episode. That was a live event in uh, early 2018, March 2018 from memory. And uh, we feel like we're a lot better podcasters now. And given that it is considered the episode of Seinfeld, the classic episode, it's usually number one or two in any list of, of Seinfeld episodes of all time. We feel it you know, deserves a redo. So next week, we're going to be redoing the contest, not only because we feel like we're a lot better, but because like we've said many times, it is the indirect sequel or the unofficial sequel to this episode. So uh, looking forward to revisiting a classic amongst classics. Yeah, me too, mate. Will it stay at number one? I guess we'll find out. But uh, yeah, we've been wanting to redo some of our older episodes as well, especially ones which may have had technical issues. There were a couple like way back where there was some audio issues at the time. So we kind of want to do it now after we've had a bit of experience. So maybe we'll bring out more of these episodes probably before we finish up next year. Yeah, yeah. So uh, keep an eye on the feed and uh, you might uh, have a few revisits pop up from time to time. In the meantime, though, if you want to talk to us, you can email bidwabasspodcast at gmail.com. We're on uh, social media all over the place. You'll find all those details in the show notes. Uh, And if you want to support us, you can listen to our previous episodes and let us know what you think of them by leaving a review or a rating, both if you feel so kind and uh, you can support us financially too. Yes, on PayPal for one-off donations and Patreon for a very low monthly fee and you get access to Curbcast Season 2 and 3, which we just started doing, Season 3, and you got early access also, or sorry, you got exclusive access to Season 11, our very original Seinfeld podcast and uh, we're six episodes in and we're going to finish up the other four. We're we're just writing the last four episodes and we'll bring them out a little bit later in the year and uh, yeah, you'll have early access to this episode as well. Nice. And uh, finally, if you want to check out our Facebook group, Seinfeldisms, do so. Uh, It's the biggest Seinfeld group on Facebook. We've just ticked over 90,000 members, but all sorts of cool stuff coming up. Trivia, uh, working with Kenny Kramer on a uh, as yet disclosed project. Uh, all those details will be revealed soon. So uh, yeah, type Seinfeldisms to face, uh, into Facebook and uh, check it out. My name's Ivan. And I'm Stephen. And we'll see you next week for the contest re-gifted. How exciting. Nice. I'm out. <laughs> Stephen. Ivan. Ivan. Stephen. <laughs> Stephen. Ivan. <laughs> Listeners. Listeners.